0: Hello, good evening everyone and uh, welcome Welcome to St Luke's Chapel on the Radcliffe Observatory uh, quarter site. Uh, My name is Oliver Cox, I'm heritage engagement fellow here at uh, the University of Oxford. And some of you in the audience know me from uh, sort of three years, three and a half years ago when I was constantly badgering various people in the National Trust uh, to come and play with Oxford. Um, The really exciting thing is three and a half years down the line, we're doing some really exciting, interesting and I also think innovative things projects that uh, encompass a whole variety of different disciplinary uh, perspectives and outlooks and that's really the aim of the lecture series that we're in the second part of uh, tonight it's about celebrating the whole variety of different ways in which our organization the University of Oxford and the National Trust can collaborate in a whole variety of different spaces places and you know really set um, well, you know, really set, set the bar really high for the next stage in, in the preservation of our nation's heritage. Um, it's my pleasure to introduce uh, our two speakers tonight. Um, but before I do, I just want to uh, uh, highlight a really exciting thing that happened on uh, Tuesday night. At the, at the it's essentially the National Trust Oscars. I was lucky enough to attend. I did my full Gwyneth Paltrow, you know, big pink dress. It looked fantastic, um, and uh, really excitingly, the project on which this lecture series rides, Trusted Source, run by Alice Perkis in the front row um, here, and nominally super- supervised by Charles Pugh uh, and myself, but really Alice does 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 absolutely have all the heavy lifting. Um, won a prize, and we won best in show um sorry no uh, best uh, uh, we won the research and understanding award at the everything and move teaching inspire conference so we're absolutely delighted to be recognized in a such a national forum for the best sort of project in that particular area um over the last year and it's absolutely a credit to all of the brilliant work that alice has done over the last year which leads me excitingly on to introduce our two speakers Tonight. So, uh, Peter Dixon is Director of Land, Landscape. Sorry? So I should go. Um. <laughs> call called many worse things. The key thing about collaboration is uh, getting the name of your collaborator right. Um, So um, back to back to collaboration school for me. Um, Anyway, Peter Nixon is director of land, landscapes and nature at the National Trust, with an overview of all the Trust's land, nature, landscape and related buildings throughout England, Wales and Northern Ireland. This includes 250,000 hectares of land and various other exciting bits and pieces. Peter is a member of the Prince's Rural Leadership Team and a council member of the Royal Agricultural Society of England and of the Country, Land and Business Association. Uh, He's a fellow of the Royal Institution of Chartered Surveyors and a fellow of of Royal Agricultural Societies. So that's Peter and also delighted that Professor Heather Viles, the head of the School of Geography and the Environment here at Oxford, is our second distinguished speaker. Heather is a uh, geographer with major interests. You see, I can tell you can tell I've started to slur these words because I'm so far out of my disciplinary comfort zone of being a historian that I can't even say these words. So Heather is a geographer with major interests in geomorphology and heritage science. Much of her research focuses on the application of science to heritage conservation. She's currently professor of biogeomorphology and heritage conservation Head of the school of geography and the environment co-director of the epsrc center for doctoral training in science and engineering and art heritage and archaeology and honorary professor at university college london so um plenty of other uh, exciting insights that I'm sure we're going to uh, enjoy over the next hour and a bit of our time together. Just a quick note on how this will all run, uh, Heather and Peter will give their own reflections on their work and the opportunities for collaboration, followed by a question and answer session uh, convened and chaired by Alice Perkins. Alice, who's first up? Peter, over to you.
1: Oliver, thank you very much. Good evening, everybody. Great to be here. I arguably have the best job in the world and um, so for the National Trust essentially I take a helicopter view of everything that goes on at our over 1,000 properties across England, Wales and Northern Ireland. Um, and I think that the Trust's possible greatest contribution to the nation is seeking to learn from what goes on at our properties. All of those properties, are such a wide geographic spread and so different in type and understand how our interventions in management are successful or unsuccessful in the context of an ever-changing external environment ever more rapidly changing economically physically socially etc and then trying to distill that information and share it it's not for us to tell others what to do but i do think we have a duty to share amongst ourselves what we're learning but also to share with others so i think this program is brilliant and the concept of it in terms of distilling, understanding, sharing knowledge for the common good. Um, so I'm really excited about that and thank you very much for inviting me here. Um, and go on. That's a good start. There we go. We don't need that, but we do need that. Okay, so uh, any of you who were here for Goshi's introductory lecture a couple of weeks ago, will have understood from her slides and what she was saying, a broad context of the trust. I'm going to be specifically focusing on that which relates to land um, and the demands that society are putting on it and the tensions that that create and what the issues are for all of us. You might say why is that land and natural resources and nature important to the Trust? Surely we're all about 18th century houses. Well, we have a lot of wonderful 18th century houses and that's hugely important for us, but we also have a lot of land. And our founding act of Parliament, you'll see the bit in green there, makes it very clear that we do have a specific responsibility for the natural aspects and features of land and their animal and plant life. So it's absolutely part of what we do. Um, And I show that because uh, those are our principal properties. What an extraordinary canvas upon which to work um, in terms of uh, understanding what is going on, learning from that, and sharing. Um, It also, coincidentally, is a brilliant source of our membership offer, which financially is the lifeblood of the trust. Um, Our 4.5 million members provides the by far the biggest single source of income for the Trust. Um, something like 140 million out of our total turnover of around about 520 million pounds a year. Um, all of which we spend, all of which goes into conservation. And a favorite phrase of mine is, we're rich only in liabilities. <laughs> um, um, there we go. It's all right. Facts and figures, I'll let those speak for themselves. There's a lot of land, a lot of buildings, a lot going on. Um, and in terms of our members and our visitors. What is interesting is we have over 20, about 23 million visits per annum to our what we call pay for entry properties which are principally the great houses and gardens where you pay to go through a pay barrier. We have over an estimated 210 million visits per annum to our coast and countryside most of which is free and so we have a huge audience there where we can engage with those people and influence and that's something that we're just on a you know the start of a learning curve I think in terms of what we might do better in that respect. And as you can see a lot of houses, a lot of farms, 1500 farms, um, 80% of our land is farmed so we're very dependent on others for managing that, our farm tenants so the relationship we have with them is critical. Um, A thousand commercial tenancies A lot of staff and 10 times as many volunteers, 70,000 volunteers. Um, We asked ourselves as we prepare our new strategy, what are the biggest challenges that the nation is facing and as a consequence what the Trust should be doing about that given our job is to act on the nation's behalf in terms of conservation. And we had no doubt at all that the biggest challenge looking ahead is the state of the natural environment and the pressures on it. So that's what I'm talking about tonight. and there's a great um, expression from Wendell Berry, an environmental guru from America, um, which is there. What we do to the land, we do to ourselves. All our lives, I would advocate, depend entirely on how we manage the land and all the resources. And for a long time, of course, we thought of it mostly as being about producing food, and food is really important, but we're only just beginning to understand how much else it does for every single one of us. Um, So what's the problem we're trying to address in terms of a declining natural environment? At the base of it, it's very simple. Land ain't made anymore. And all of us are putting ever greater demands on it. Both increasing world population, increasing UK population, and consumption per head. There is bound to be tension when you've got something in fixed supply and you're putting ever increasing demand on it. I'd guess whether that's the essence of geography in terms of the human and physical interaction. Um, I would advocate that planning, which gets knocked all too easily, is absolutely essential in a civilised society to negotiate amongst us all how we resolve that tension between land in fixed supply and what we all want from it. Um, so let's not give up on planning for goodness sake. Disconnection is a principal theme um, of my analysis. Nature has become disconnected. Um, by industrialised agriculture, all sorts of aspects of that. Ever larger fields, fewer hedgerows, monoculture everywhere. When I was training as a student, a typical farm might be 600 acres with four or five crops and um, livestock mixed with it all. Now that farm uh, is part of 5,000 acres um, and you have four or five crops but you have 1,000 acres of oilseed rape or 1,000 acres of um, sugar beet or what have you, so far less diversity. Um, and nature needs a diverse landscape to be permeable and it has to move as a consequence of a changing climate because most species have a tolerance for a certain temperature range and as our climate is warming many species in order to remain alive have to move north or upwards um, and if they can't move there's a problem and that's a global problem. Um, I think nature has become But people have become disconnected, I would argue, right from the agricultural revolution to the present day. Technology has brought huge benefits, but it's also disconnected us from understanding how nature works, particularly for farmers who have become ever dependent on agrochemicals, etc. Um, And for us as a society, um, we've been disconnected from each other in terms of the need to make communal entertainment because we can have it piped in. Um, And it's not until there is a snowstorm or a flood and we all have to work together, I bet you there are a lot of people who will be helping on National Trust Properties sorting out the results of the storm that we're suffering at the moment. And people feel really good about it. We're actually social animals. And we've become disconnected from ourselves and we've become disconnected from the land. So a big part of the solution, I think, is how can we become reconnected? Um, There is an illusion that technological advance means that humans are conquering nature. Um, We are not. Every advance that we make, nature finds a way of addressing that advance, particularly clearly in the field of chemicals. You only need to think of antibiotics. Um, Over the last year, agricultural chemicals have become less and less effective in controlling pests, um, etc. Um, So we constantly have to remain one step ahead. And why fight nature if you don't have to? Why not understand natural processes and work with them where you can? What does sustainability mean? That third bullet point from the bottom there, natural resources are mined, not harvested. This is a saying from Jared Diamond, who's a professor in America, and an environmental guru and archaeologist. He's a polymath. Absolutely brilliant. I, I had a long discussion with him in America with regard to his book which is called Collapse, which identifies how various nations have survived or collapsed, depend on how they manage things, and the National Trust's own experience, and lots of similarities. Um, And at the heart of it, we are essentially mining our natural resources, we're not harvesting them. If you think of capital, money in the bank, you know it doesn't make sense to live off the capital in the bank alone, you need to live off the interest. Exactly the same with natural capital, we need to live off the interest of our natural capital. Globalisation is having a big impact, that's stuff moving around the world, whether that's people, or whether that's things, and with that brings a lot of disease, and a lot of species that are not native. Um, and that requires a lot of management. And then a change in climate. That is obvious what that is doing. Um, this is one of my favorite but very scary slides. Uh, that was in the floods of 2015, showing in the UK hemorrhaging soil. Hemorrhaging soil. We lose between 2 and 3 million tons of topsoil a year. Globally, 24 billion tons of topsoil is lost a year. That's several tonnes per person on the planet of topsoil as a consequence of agricultural practice. That is pretty terrifying. In America, in the Mississippi Basin, there is every second one dumper load truck, one big lorry load of soil disappearing into the Mississippi and then into the Caribbean every second. Um, And in the UK we're not immune to that as this shows, that sort of tomato soup going into the major estuaries is is topsoil that should be in the fields and that's the cause of it in terms of that sort of management. Um, And this is just an illustration of the decline of wildlife. So the bottom red line is uh, birds, and that's farmland birds. And you can see the decline from 1973 to 2014. Um, And alas, it's still continuing. Um, And birds are just a very good indicator in themselves. I wouldn't advocate they're the most important thing, but they're a good proxy. If wildlife on the surface that you can easily measure is doing that, then you can be pretty sure that the things upon which it depends, ultimately land and habitat, is also not in good health. That is what really worries us. Um, and then in terms of the impact on coastlines, as a consequence of changing climate, um, global sea levels are rising, global temperatures are rising, glacial melt, as well as thermal expansion, as well as isostatic change. The fact that since the ice age, we've been recovering the balance because during the ice age 10,000, 12,000 years ago, if you took a line from the Wash down to the 7th, the Bristol Channel, the north of that was under ice, the south of that wasn't. Um, it all tipped down when it was under ice, it's gradually re-tipping, the bottom half therefore of the UK is going into the sea and the sea is also rising. The combination of that and more stormy events like today, when you have a high tide, causes real problems for those hotter coloured areas, the East Coast and the estuaries um, that are shown hot there. And we've done an analysis of all of our coastline and we own a lot of it, 750 odd miles of it, in terms of what's at risk and what we need to do about it. Um, So more of that is inevitable. More intense rainfall, this was the Lake District earlier last year, Storm Desmond. Um, Two lakes joining up completely. Massive, massive impact in terms of nearly a foot of rain, 12 inches of rain overnight. Can bring a boulder the size of this table down from the top, down to the bottom. And blasting away man-made intrusions, if you like, in the landscape with regard to the valley bottoms where rivers have been straightened, land's been used for agricultural purposes. Since monastic times, you only need to stand on the top of those hills and look down and you can see where the river wants to go and will go. And what's different now is the intensity of rainfall in a short period means that we're getting much more of a blasting effect. So this is just National Trust staff and our contractors helping local people in the Lake District clear up afterwards. What is quite encouraging is the mail in the past has been not too supportive of the principle of changing climate. We produced quite a lot of information last year from our own experience, about thousands of properties um, regarding what is our practical experience, produced a report and that's really made a difference. People have actually said, gosh yes, something really is happening um, and they can tell from their own experience. So here we have a headline from the mail that is actually saying, yep, something is happening, we all need to wake up and start smelling the coffee, which is good news and it illustrates the benefit of actually research and empirically bringing evidence together. And then expressing it. So, what's this guy here for? You all know. <laughs> um, the implications of Brexit for land management are fundamental. Um, and this guy's made it even more interesting uh, in the context of um, what's happening to the Common Agricultural Policy and what's happening to world trade. So, in the context of the Common Agricultural Policy, there's a huge dependence in the UK on subsidies for farming, um, which is almost certainly going to evaporate um, in its current form, and the whole question is what might it be replaced by, and that will be made more acute for farmers given that um, we are in a process of negotiating, nobody knows the outcome, our trade agreements. but. The general consensus of opinion seems to be, and Theresa Mays made it very clear, we're not going to stay in the single market. So much of our agricultural bodies, particularly livestock, which is hugely important to the shape of the uplands, is dependent on the export market. That's why we have the single market in Europe, so there are no tariffs and we can import export to it. If we have to pay those export tariffs in the future, or, which is equally likely, we have to accept imports of um, New Zealand, Australian, Canadian, American beef, and sheep produced in a completely different way um, with really significant impacts for their environment at a much lower cost. That yet has further implications in terms of the profitability of farming, what that means for farmland. And bear in mind, that means 70% of the UK surface area. Um, so, so, what's the solution to some of this? In the trust, we've concluded that we need to stand back and identify what are the fundamental outputs of land? What are the things that society needs from land? How can we then make well-informed choices about any bit of 10 hectares? What capability does that have to produce for society these different things? And then let's make a well-informed choice about how we go ahead and use that land, rather than just navigate by a wake and do what we've done for the last 50 years, which has been so influenced by the common agricultural policy and our own post-war policy, which is entirely determined by the U-boat. In other words, the threats that we had that materialised in the Second World War in terms of food supplies, U-boats, etc. Um, torpedoing North Sea convoys immediately after the war, the 1947 Agriculture Act, the 47-48 Agricultural Holdings Act determined the whole policy which encouraged farming to be investing in the future, which is why farming has had such a benign tax system, planning system, subsidy system, etc all in, all designed to encourage long-term investment in food production, but it's had really significant consequences for other aspects of the environment, and a very significant consequence for farmers themselves, because they've become entirely what we call price takers. They don't have to, until 2005, they could sell as much as they like and get a guaranteed price for it. That does not make you very smart in terms of operating in a real-world market. Um, That protection is now going, subsidies are going, it's a stark situation, but also a really interesting catalyst in terms of the opportunities that it presents. And there are opportunities for standing back and saying, what is it that we need from land? First of all, it's that, because without that, that's the golden goose, I'd argue, that lays everything. Um, we want in the trust, and we believe the nation wants, rich wildlife habitats and rich wildlife. We believe it needs to be accessible land, that people need to enjoy it, and my goodness, if farmers want to get public money after Brexit, for what they're doing. They need to have a good story to tell in terms of why the public should put money into farming and farmland rather than shortening the queue to A&E or getting a bobby to come around when your house is broken into or a place to local school for your kids. Any public money after Brexit will be very transparent. At the moment, nobody's got a clue what the CAP means or where it comes from or what it does. That will be fundamentally different later. Uh, culturally rich, really important for the Trust. Obviously in the context of physical assets, but also human aspects. So what the skills that are required to maintain what we consider to be significant about the countryside, what we all consider to be significant. Beautiful, we shouldn't be shy of talking about beauty, certainly the National Trust. It is an important aspect of the countryside. And if you get countryside that's healthy often, it will be beautiful. And that's really important in economic terms as well. More and more people want to live in a beautiful place and can do so in this technological age, where they don't have to live in a city. They can work at home from broadband, and that's a huge opportunity. And productive, of course. We still need to feed ourselves. We don't want to be dependent on foreign imports any more than we need to, but we need to be realistic. We are a trading nation, and we will have to import food. Um, I think what we need to do is focus on quality of food, rather than quantity, because we cannot compete with um, different suppliers from abroad where they have a much greater comparative economic advantage in production. That's just a fact. Uh, And if you think that um, I'm being unrealistic with regard to farm incomes and what this means, you won't be able to read that table, but these are DEFRA figures, government figures for 2015. What they show is the average for all UK farms, total income for that average farm, £49,000 in 2015. How much do you think came from food production to the primary producer? two and a half thousand pounds out of that 49. 9,000 was from diversification. Things like bed and breakfast, mostly tourism related. All the rest came from cap subsidies. In the uplands, net figure in terms of income, 16, sorry, 14,900. Contribution of farming in terms of livestock sales, minus 16,000. 2,000 diversification, all the rest, huge chunk, Pillar 1 and Pillar 2, the two elements of CAP. Um, So really significant implications if that disappears. What are the future sources of income for farming or farmland? Let's call it farmland. Food and fibre production. It's important to say that because our farmers are geared to be producing. So if you don't recognize that's a huge motivation for them. You've immediately lost the subject that you're talking to them about. But we need to get it into context, because it's not the situation that we're facing in the future that we have for the past. Um, Conventional diversification is going to become ever more important, Um, so tourism-based in particular. Uh, New diversification and economic models a really exciting area, particularly interesting in the context of university studies and academic and research, but we need to move from that to practical application. This is what I'm talking about in terms of water, in terms of water catchment management, carbon management, natural capital. Um, The Trust is working very hard with a number of organisations to develop a real market, particularly in water, where it's all about avoided costs. So if you're a telecoms company, a utilities company, a local authority with responsibility for stopping something being flooded, our argument is it's a lot cheaper to stop the water from coming down from the uplands, from the catchment and flooding, than it is to build pipe-end engineered solutions. about six times cheaper, so why wouldn't you? And I do believe there's a real um, possibility that that will develop. Uh, and then public funding, which will still have a place, but my goodness, and the Trust has argued this ever since Brexit was announced, if there's going to be public funding, it has to go into overt public goods. The public have to see what the benefit is. Um, And in terms of what are we specifically doing about declining nature on our own properties, we've got a program drawing on um, uh, the knowledge that we've gained in terms of doing an assessment of all of our 250,000 hectares, categorizing it in terms of condition against those six outcomes of land, and then using that as a a knowledge base to inform the decisions about its future use. The outcomes that we want are an increase in species abundance and diversity. And underpinning that, we've got to get improvements to soils and water. Without those two, frankly, we're stuffed. Um, And then in terms of more specific things that we're doing, John Lawton, Professor John Lawton, produced a report for government a few years ago that, in terms of a solution, identified three key things that we all need to be doing for nature. What we've got, we're going to look after better. We need to polish it. Um, We need more of it, because nature needs scale. So it needs to be bigger. um, And it needs to be joined up. Our landscape needs to be permeable, both for nature and natural resources. Water will go where it will. Wildlife completely gives, um, if you like, two proverbial fingers to property and proprietorial and political boundaries. We need to recognise that in the way in which we manage land. Um, and these are the tools that we have used. Uh, happy to talk about those afterwards. Um, and we need to move our, our farmers from being price takers and just taking whatever price the world market delivers to actually getting a lot closer to the consumer and generating a price that reflects quality and a premium because that's that's our belief in terms of the the future for agricultural produce and these are examples of where we're doing that Um, and we're trialling a scheme up in the Yorkshire Dales on the basis of what's called payment for outcomes so at the moment subsidy pays mostly on the basis of per hectare you get 160 quid And that will not last. Um, So we're identifying how can we have specific outcomes that then you actually make a payment relating to that. And those are the outcomes for which there is no obvious market at present. So it's right that the public purse should be paid for it. My final slide is one I love, this is from America when I was over there, and I just picked this up, the point that, I think it's a bit of a misquote actually in terms of understanding, but it makes a great point. The Bard, that was Shakespeare, Um, the point that uh, nature is a common point to us all. So all of those things I was saying in terms of the future use of land that has an economic perspective, the sweet spot of the Venn diagram, I would say, is nature, it's the natural environment. All of those depend on that. Now, nature and culture go together. Nature shapes culture, culture shapes nature. Um, we can disregard nature if we like, but only for a relatively short period. Um, and uh, actually, nature in the end doesn't require humankind. A uh, humankind most certainly does require nature. Disregard it, um, and you can be sure, ultimately, it will disregard us. So that's my basic thesis. Um, and what I say to all my colleagues in the trust is, Our job is to learn from the past but be really enthusiastic about the future. We should be talking about solutions. My children don't want to hear about the problems, they want to hear what we can do about it. Um, So, the idea of cherishing the past but relishing the future um, is uh, something that certainly gets me out of bed in the morning. Thank you.
2: Thank you very much. I think Peter has given an excellent introduction both to the topic area of our environment, the challenges, and the opportunities, but he's also surreptitiously given a fantastic introduction to geography. Um, I have the second best job in the world. Uh, I am head at the moment of probably the best geography department in the world. Um, that really comes from a number of, of ranking exercises, but also just from the sheer vibrancy uh, of what we do. So what I really want to focus on is a bit more how geographers can respond to some of the challenges that uh, Peter has so eloquently uh, introduced. And I want to do that by giving some facts and figures about our department uh, and some examples of the kind of things we can offer. So we're a surprisingly big department. We have over 300 members of staff, we have just over 500 students, uh, spread between undergraduate, master's level, which I'll come back to later because they're particularly important, uh, and PhD uh, level. We have three embedded research institutes, which I'll say a little bit about, We have a turnover of 18 million pounds a year and in 2015 we produced over 530 uh, publications in refereed literature. So we're big, we're multifaceted, we're interdisciplinary, we're truly international and we're very interested in trying to address all the kinds of problems uh, that Peter introduced. And we do this in a way that's very international, and I want to show you a classic geographical map, a bit of a wacky map. Uh, this is a cartogram, so the size of the uh, areas here represent the amount of doctoral research that's done in that area. Uh, so over the period 2011 to 2016, we had 228 mm. doctoral projects, uh, of which 28 focused on the UK. But you see also a very big bulge, the yellow and the green uh, in Asia, are a large uh, combination of projects that were carried out there. So the point of this is simply to show that we are international and what we find out from around the world uh, is also very applicable to the British environment. Because we're big, because we have a lot of researchers, we're currently organised into five research clusters, which cut across uh, all the different kinds of research done uh, in the department. And I just want to introduce you briefly to each of these to show how I think we can offer a lot to the National Trust and to other people who are interested in these problems of our environment. So our cluster on biodiversity ecosystems and conservation focuses on a whole range of problems to do with uh, the biological environment and human interactions uh, with that. Climate systems and policy cluster, as it says on the tin, uh, really does address the science of climate (laughs) and climate change, uh, policy adaptations and mitigation uh, to climate, both in Britain uh, and around the world. Landscape dynamics, of course, occupies a slide in its own because it's the cluster that I'm associated <laughs> with, but it really deals with the land itself. So, Peter raised a really important I- in issue and showed that image of Britain hemorrhaging soil. And understanding soil erosion, the natural processes of the landscape, is one thing that uh, a number of researchers in our department uh, do. And then we have at the moment two human geography clusters, one looking at technological natures, trying to reimagine how technology and nature, uh, humans and society, uh, interact. And then transformations, which looks, uh, again, especially at geographies of finance, work and employment, and how societies uh, really play out uh, across the world. As I said at the beginning as well we have three embedded research institutes and these are really critical not only to us delivering our research in terms of improving our understanding but in terms of delivering that research to make a difference, so if you like trying to link what we do, what we think about uh, to policy. And one of our research institutes, the older one, is the Environmental Change Institute, now 25 years old, which looks at all kinds of interactions between humans and the environment and environmental change. For example, they have a very big food systems group, which tackles many of the issues that Peter was talking about in terms of uh, agricultural change. We also have the Smith School for Enterprise and the Environment which links businesses with sustainable uh, development and change and again is providing a real focal point for thinking about how enterprise might play more of a role in solving some of these uh, environmental problems. And finally, we have the Transport Studies Unit, which again addresses all kind of aspects of transport, from walking, through cycling, through driving, through air transport, uh, to great shipping uh, transport. Similarly, thinking about some of the uh, links between that and the many environmental problems. And if we look at just a smaller scale, I just want to introduce... I mean, there are lots of research groups. I, of course, want to introduce my own. So I represent Ox Rubble. I've decided in my uh, old age it's going to become Ox Rebel (laughs) because I'm fed up with playing the game uh, very much. But this is very symptomatic of the kind of smaller research groups we have. Groups of about 12 to 15 people, highly interdisciplinary, focused on some aspect Of our environment uh, and how it's changing. We look at how rocks break down in the natural environment through processes of weathering very important on coastal cliffs and shore platforms but we also apply that knowledge to uh, understanding the deterioration of buildings and helping conservation. And one project we've been engaged with for English Heritage and now Historic England for 15 years is trying to use nature-based methods to conserve their ruined sites. And the image shows you Hales Abbey in Gloucestershire, which is the first site to be entirely covered with soil and turf, what we call soft capping, in a nature-friendly and cheap and hopefully sustainable way to conserve the site. And these are the kind of projects that geographers do uh, on a day-to-day basis. This, of course, is nothing new. And as an academic, it's very important always to look back at where we've come from, and geographers have always been engaged in these kind of issues, and I just wanted to focus on uh, L. Dudley Stamp, a very forgotten figure in the history of geography, but very important. Wrote a number of very good books. I've been to the Oxfam bookshop today and bought back one of my husband's books, uh, which he gave away uh, recently. Um, But he wrote many different books about all aspects of the British environment and uh, really led the land utilisation survey, which is a very important exercise in mapping uh, land use across Britain. So this is nothing new, but I think geographers are now bringing a very new dimension, and that's really what I want to uh, finish by focusing on. Uh, One thing that geographers are really concerned with is the concept of the Anthropocene. This is, of course, a highly debated concept. Really, the question is, has the Earth entered a new era in which human activities are dominating uh, what's going on on the planet at the planetary scale? Now, we might debate this, but it's very important now, I think, to think about those themes that Peter pulled out. Culture and nature, they're intertwining now, is very usefully looked at within the framework of the Anthropocene. And that's something that geographers uh, are doing an awful lot on. But I'd like to think about the challenges to our environment and how geographers can contribute in three main uh, areas firstly i think geographers bring a lot of insights into one of the biggest challenges for our environmental futures that is of uncertainty predictions are probabilistic now of climate change of all sorts of things how do we deal with that as people who are trying to understand and manage uh, environments and there are many research projects in our department and other geography departments trying to wrestle with uncertainty and how we can uh, deal with it. Secondly, geographers are very good at dealing with questions of time and history. This image shows the Archimedes' uh, Archimedes palimpsest. So that's a 10th century copy which has been overwritten with 13th century uh, Christian uh, script. Geographers don't study this. This is the kind of thing that Oliver studies uh, as a historian. But the concept of a palimpsest is one way in which geographers view landscapes. So landscapes being like this kind of palimpsest, overwritten by generations of natural and human processes. And again, that brings in a lot of complexity. So in thinking about how we can better manage the landscape for the future, we need to have a better appreciation of this rich palimpsest. And geographers of all types... I think, uh, really contribute to uh, illuminating that palimpsest. And thirdly, the last challenge that I'd like to uh, focus on is that of conflict. So rather than using uh, an image of Trump or something like that, I've used uh, a map from 1900, which is called serio comic Map of Europe, uh, produced by Fred Rose showing the geopolitics of Europe in 1900. And I just want you to notice the rather looming presence of uh, the Russian Federation there uh, as an octopus. Okay, but the notion of conflict, of conflict of all sorts, but especially geopolitical conflict, is something that geographers are very well equipped to study and something which again, as Peter pointed out, is threatening uh, our landscape today. So my last but one slide then is really how can geographers help with the challenges that Peter raised and the framings that I've uh, just given. And I'd like to pick on a number of different examples. So firstly geographers can help by increasingly providing scientific evidence about the landscape, how it operates and how humans are uh, having an impact on it and many of our large research projects especially those in the environmental change institute really revolve around better understandings of environmental processes secondly we can help by carrying out a lot of social science research and the picture in the in the uh, middle there with griff reese jones and my colleague sarah watmore uh, gives an example of how social scientists can address problems of flooding and in this case, slowing down the flow. So Sarah and her research project won uh, a prize from the Civic Society for their work in Pickering on coming up with new ways to uh, produce flood defences that worked from nature, but also importantly, worked from the ideas generated by local communities. So social scientists uh, empower people to come up with their own uh, solutions. Geography can also help by the vast amount of student projects that we have and this is where I want to come back to our, our Masters uh, uh, offering. So we have just over 100 Masters students a year in four programmes and each of these programmes addresses some facet of the environment and some facet of, uh, of human interaction uh, with it. And our master's students are truly international and truly outstanding. They all do a dissertation and they all have the capability to address some of the issues um, that Peter raised earlier. And as head of department, one of my nice privileges is to have tea with all of them. And during the past couple of weeks, I've been doing that. And I've been asking all of them in a rather intimidating way what they're doing for their dissertations. And for example, people are working in BISTA, looking at problems of hedgehog conservation there with a the local society. Another student is looking at ecosystem services and water use uh, in Dorset. And I believe these are a rich resource of student uh, projects uh, that could tackle uh, more uh, of our uh, environmental challenges. And finally, we also do have a lot of internship uh, opportunities for our students, and that's another good way uh, that they can transfer their knowledge uh, and work more widely uh, on some of these projects. More information, as ever, you can find uh, on our website. And I really wanted just to finish off by saying, welcome. Welcome to geography. Uh, Welcome to what I hope is uh, the contribution which I think we can all make uh, to tackling some of the challenges that Peter raised early on. Thank you very much.
3: Um, I'm just going to start off a kind of in conversation. And we'd really like to quickly open it up to questions. So please be thinking of your questions. For, for the speakers, um, so one of the things that I um, kind of a, a common thread that I could see between the two papers um, was Heather the for universities to demonstrate impact and relevance in, in this increasing um, requirement, and I think we picked that that picks up from the last lecture actually, um, and then also the fact that the National Trust is for everyone but also there's increasing pressure from the press, as, as we saw a positive example from um, the Daily Mail, but obviously, especially with landscape projects more recently with the, with the trust. So I'd like to ask what the role of science communication or communicating the work that we do, or, or are both within the trust and within the university to, tr- to really um, demonstrate the good that's being done or the,
2: the fact that we're trying to tackle these problems. Um,
1: or use this one yeah. us.
2: um, I mean science communication is, is absolutely crucial I mean science isn't science without it being effectively communicated and I think it's something that uh, geographers within the university but really everybody in the university um, is getting much better at but we need people to communicate to and we need to understand those audiences but I think more important than that Communication involves listening as well. Um, And I think that's something that uh, geographers and everyone can learn quite a lot from. So, communication definitely is a two way uh, journey, somehow. Um, And I think so, we just need not to spend so much time thinking about what we're trying to tell people as how we're going to have a conversation about, about things. Because it's only by having a conversation, says she, dominating the conversation, <laughs> um, that we learn what the misunderstandings are, how we may or may not share fundamental uh, understandings of things.
1: Yeah, I'd agree with that. I'd also observe that the communications world in which we live now is fundamentally different from that in which most of my career has been exercised. Uh, So the world of social media, Twitter, Facebook, etc., just look at the American election, Trump. Um, But much more than that, the opportunity it presents as well as the challenges. So part of the challenges you picked up on, Alice, in the context of criticism can be very quickly marshaled. If somebody doesn't like what you're doing, it is very easy to get a group of like-minded people and then very powerfully express that. And I think that's just reality, and it's great. Um, It means that organizations like The Trust, which are big, um, are always vulnerable to the sort of David and Goliath syndrome, Um, and that emphasizes your point, we need to listen more. Mm. I think, though, it's got a much more fundamental implication um, on a global basis. If you think about conflict, so your third area up Mm. there, um, Heather, uh, my own analysis is that one of the reasons why there is increasing conflict, and it's only likely to get worse, Um, is the easy accessibility of knowledge through digital means, mobile phones and all the rest of it, between the have-nots in this world and the haves. The have-nots globally can see what the haves have got, and they want some of it. Um, And and so it's not surprising we've had the migration, so how many people who wanted to move from Syria and move from Africa wanted to get to Germany when they saw what they thought was the land of milk and honey? Um, And that transparency of the gulf of living standards i suspect is something we're going to have to take into account Um, and values um, that we all have just turning to conflict is something we need to be careful about because i think conflict generally arises when one group in society seeks to impose its values on others and when that happens watch out and if you really seek to impose them you probably end up with war (laughs)
3: <laughs> yes, I think that's a really interesting point as well about that, um, going back to that communications question, because commun- as you say, it's a conversation. It's not us telling you mm. yeah. what, what to think. It's yeah. listening as well. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> another question that, well, I was asked, uh, particularly to do with your discussion of connection, people yes. are becoming less connected to our landscape, but it's fundamental that we connect them back. Yeah. And I'm really interested in that idea of how we can shape a next generation you know looking forward
2: yeah.
3: of advocates for our landscape yeah. both within the university world but also within or by, by way of organizations such as the national trust yeah. Yeah. Um, and and how do we shape them and what are the hooks and what is it that we want from that future generation
1: yeah. there is hope because there is a future generation jared diamond in his book um, that i described earlier in terms of what are the factors that have caused civilizations past and present either to survive or to collapse um, at the end of the book he said is there any hope because it's all pretty gloomy and at the end he said there is hope because we continue to procreate. We have a next generation ahead of us, a lot of us have children (coughs) and that gives us a fundamental vested interest in caring about the future. Um, So in terms of the future generation um, I think we have a duty to provide solutions. Um, so I've been talking a bit about jeopardy here in terms of what's the problem to solve. I want to move on quickly from that in terms of communications to what are the solutions to that mm-hmm. because that's what the next generation want to hear and they need to, be, they need to have it communicated to them on terms with which they're familiar. So we have to become adept at using social media to do that but we need it to, to be evidence-based too. Um, the risk is that we have so much false news out there and false information and um, that... Uh, the the good stories become discredited. So really good scientific research, practical organisations like the Trust working with universities to combine um, uh, academic research through to applied application will I think become ever more important combined with the ability to tell good stories in a very short space of time.
2: I agree with all of that. And I think the other way that we get the advocates of the future um, is through taking them out to the landscape. Um, I mean, fieldwork underpins geography, and it's something that all geographers are passionately committed to. Uh, my daughters think it's just because I like a good holiday, but it is really important to get out there and see, appreciate, enjoy the landscape, the society, uh, whatever. And I yeah. think you know, yeah. that's, that's going to be terrifically important. So yes, you're absolutely right, we need to engage with social media, get them on their platforms, get them plugged into their, their phones and their iPads, but I think we also need to yeah. get them yeah. out in the, in the real environment.
1: And if I may, well, I've got it just in the principle of geography, um, of, of the various subjects that I've studied from A-level right the way through my professional career, I'd say, and this isn't just because I'm sitting next door to Heather, actually geography is the most important single subject. I did it at A-level, I didn't do it at university because I then went on to read Land Economy, but it absolutely influenced all my thinking, and every day I draw upon the sort of fundamental economic principles that I was taught all those years ago. And I've been inspired in the trust by one of our former leaders, Um, Dane Fiona Reynolds who herself was a geographer Um, and um, you could see it in the way in which she thought how that influenced um, the way in which she approached life Um, so good for you
2: (laughs) (laughs) I've got a convert
3: Thank you both. That was a really interesting discussion. And I'd like to welcome you all to continue said discussion over a glass of wine or fizzy water, maybe? I think we have. Maybe some elderflowers. Um, We're going to just have some drinks in the Humanities building, which is just opposite. First floor, we'll be ushering you over if you'd like to join us. Um, Just a quick reminder as well that the next lecture in this series is on the 9th of March, here again. And it's with uh, Zar Sturgis, the director of the Ashmolean Museum, and Simon Murray, um, head of cura- I never know his yeah. job title, curatorial uh, external affairs
0: and strategy. And
3: strategy. <laughs> um, But they'll both be talking about collection- our collections and their audiences. Um, so please um, get in touch if you would like to come there. Space are, are nearly run out for that event, so um, there's a few left. But uh, I'd just like to um, thank. Both of our speakers now um, and invite you all to yeah join in and, and say thank you.